Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, today, we're so very happy to be, to be talking about this book. Uh, I'll be introducing Jameson Stoltz to my far right in that beautiful mustard sweater. <laughs> and uh, Jameson uh, was the senior was a senior editor at Grove, and now he is, has an imprint of his own at Abram. So congratulations to that. And he will go ahead and introduce the rest of our panelists. Thank, Thank you, Noel. Thank you, Skylar. Thanks all of you for coming. Maron Canero to my left was born in Addis Ababa. Oh. Came to the U.S. as a child via by, by East Germany and then West Germany. Her fiction has appeared in Best American Short Stories, chosen by Juno Diaz in many other journals um, and on NPR's Selected Shorts. She's been the recipient of many fellowships, including at Yaddo and the McDowell Colony. And Viet Nguyen, who I, many of you probably know, who I've learned this is his home bookstore, <laughs> is the author of three previous books, The Sympathizer, which won the Pulitzer Prize, among many other awards, Nothing Ever Dies, Vietnam, and the Memory of War, which was a finalist for the National Book Award, and The Refugees, all of those critically acclaimed bestsellers. He's the chair of the English department at USC, critic at large at the LA Times, and an opinion writer at the New York Times. Thank you both for coming. So I wanted to ask you a question that we started to talk about upstairs, and it was something that when Viet and I started working on this book, it was an issue from the very beginning of, we're putting together an anthology of essays by refugee writers. What makes a refugee? Where do we draw the line? How do you distinguish between immigrants and refugees? You know, who qualifies? Viet, um, I wonder if you, you know, you write in the book that refugees are more controversial, more, dam more demanding, and more threatening. Tell me about how you see this distinction. Well, I think there, there's like a legal and political distinction, which is obviously really crucial. You know, the, the UN says there's 66.5 million displaced people in this world, but they only, they only call 22.5 of them, 22.5 million of them, refugees. So I'm th I think the other 40 million who aren't included in the refugee status, I think, ah, I, I feel like a refugee. You know, I've, been, I've been forced out of my home. I don't have yeah. carrying all my belongings with me, but the UN doesn't call me one. Well, in my mind, that person is still a refugee, right? And that's part of it, you know, the distinction that we're insisting on. It's an odd thing to want to claim to be a refugee because most sane people do not want to be refugees. But if you happen to look like one, you might as well be called one so you can get some of the benefits of that happening. And I think that uh, you know, in this country, maybe in particular, the distinction is really crucial because uh, this country, even though it's going through a xenophobic moment, which has gone through before, even those people who don't like refugees, I mean immigrants, still think that immigrants validate this country. Because of course immigrants want to come here. We're awesome. The American dream, all that kind of stuff. But refugees are something completely different. You know, they're, they're much more threatening. I'll just end with one anecdote. Um, Hurricane Katrina happened and displaced tens of thousands of people, including some Vietnamese people who had gone there. And the American media, some of them called these people refugees. They looked like refugees, probably smelled like refugees. And President George Bush said, it's un-American to call these people refugees. And for perhaps the first and only time in history, Jesse Jackson agreed with him. <laughs> and so a lot of these people were African Americans, and Jesse Jackson said it's, it's racist to call African Americans refugees. So we as Americans, I think, find it particularly, are, we're particularly allergic to this idea of refugees being associated with the United States because we just can't imagine that the U.S. could ever become a country that would produce refugees. And, you know, one of the things we were talking about uh, briefly upstairs also was that uh, we could really see ourselves as a country of refugees, too. I mean, with, um, Amen. you know, with uh, religious persecution kind of spurring the yes. original wave of settlers, I mean, I don't, it's difficult to look back on that history and not still see a refugee root there. I'm not entirely sure why we don't acknowledge that or embrace it, but we don't. 
Marone, you write in your essay in the book about retracing your steps as a refugee. I wondered what motivated you to make that journey, and you know, where did it take you, and why did you choose to write about it for the book? Sure. Um, you know, it was something that I was exploring in creative writing through fiction, um, and I, and that's you know a space of imagination, and I really felt like that that time. So I left Ethiopia when I was two, and I, w I left Germany um, before I was three and a half. So I was you know it was that time before you, your memory re really settles in, and. Uh, still, my re remembered life begins there in that time of being a refugee, and I felt like that time before I really remembered it still felt right for creative exploration. Something drew me to that. Um, I felt like it was part of me, but I, I couldn't remember it. I could imagine it. I could um, kind of still put myself in that place. Um, it was still my community. It was still my history, um, and I realized though that in order to really empathize with really my parents who had um, you know decided to take this remarkable miraculous trip um, uh, trip but you know journey I don't even know what to call it um, that really saved our our family uh, I had to walk in their shoes and try to experience what they had experienced. I knew that I could never really get there. Um, I talked with them along the way. I learned more about this story. There was a lot that they hadn't revealed to, to us, I think, to protect me and my sister who's here. Um, and, you know, it really took, like, retracing that to almost unearth those stories, too, to even start the conversation. And um, that was really what motivated me to take that journey. Yeah, I should know the answer to this, but have you gone back to Vietnam? I've gone back to Vietnam several times, 2002 to 2012. I went back five or six times for about a year altogether. And um, it was a little bit like what Miron is talking about, you know, just this desire to go back to a place where I was born, and, and of which I had no memory, but which I felt that I was psychically attached to in some way, especially through like my name, for example. You know, I mean, when my parents became citizens, they, they legally changed their names. And these are, okay, look, my parents, I was raised by parents who told me all the time, you are 100% Vietnamese, yeah. which meant they are too, but they had no problems legally changing their names to American names, Western names. And my mom said, do you want to change your name? When I became a citizen, and I thought, hmm, Troy, how does that sound? <laughs> that was my reaction too. I was like, this is not working. I just feel like Viet is my name. And so there was some psychic attachment that I wanted to, to enact and go back home to see. One, one other thing about uh, what, what Marone is talking about, um, I reviewed, I reread your essay um, for, this, for this event. And I freaked out. I was like, oh my god, I think I plagiarized your essay. <laughs> because the essay is very much about you, you know, going to Germany where your family had initially resettled and you and you were you the rhetorical device you're using is, I remember this, but I don't remember that. Right. And that's my rhetorical device. And I was like, oh my god. I must have read your essay and then just like absorbed it and regurgitated the whole device. And Jameson bless you. So that didn't happen. I set the record straight. Yes, yeah, so I I've actually written it yeah. separately. But it goes to, uh, yeah, because you, I came when I was four to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and you came when you were about three or so. Yeah, after I turned three before I was three and a half. So, and I think that, you know, we, sh that's, uh, you know, we share that experience, despite our different backgrounds and where we ended up uh, sort of being on the threshold of memory as refugee children. Um, my memories begin in a refugee camp. And so, I, and, and so I think I grew up with that sense that I, re I remember some things, but I don't remember other things because I hear my parents talking about these horrible experiences and all the people they left behind and so on. And so that, that idea of not remembering things I should remember or that I hear about plagued me, and I, and I think it affected you as well. So it's interesting that you mentioned the name. The first essay in the collection is by an Afghani-American writer who had a very similar experience. I mean, who had to go and, you know, when he registered for school, had to choose what his name was going to be, whether he was going to keep his very Afghan-sounding name, whether he was going to Americanize it, whether he was going to, and what that meant for his identity. The book, um, the universality, I think, is a very interesting thing. 
the, the name I wanted, by the way, was Kimberly. <laughs> you could still be Kimberly if you really want to. Sounded so American to me. Yeah. So this, the Displacer was reviewed in The Economist magazine, and the reviewer wrote that thinking, if you think about the 65 displaced, 65 million displaced people as a country, it would be smaller than Thailand, but bigger than France. And that this, you know, the one thing that this country lacks is a national literature. And that this collection is sort of the beginning of assembling a literary canon for that country. I wonder if you had anything like that in mind when we set out to work on this book, and or what it was that you know, drove you to this project when we first talked about it. Well, I think we talked about it, and, and you know, we, we made a decision that we wanted to have writers uh, in, this, in this anthology. Because obviously if we said we wanted to do uh, oral histories, for example, there'd be no shortage. There'd be tens of thousands of people we could interview. So I think it was, it was really interesting that we chose writers and that we found enough writers. Um, and, and there were writers we asked who never responded, you know, so there are even more than 17 refugee writers out there who are, who are doing really good work, but not a lot more than <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I know who turned us down, uh, who never replied. Um, <laughs> but I, I think it, it, it goes to show that um, the refugee experience has indeed imprinted itself on people turning them into writers. It just takes a while. You know, it takes like decades before any given community can produce writers who are writing in the language of the host country, not necessarily the language of the country of origin, because if you look at Vietnamese refugees, for example, there's a very vibrant Vietnamese language literature produced by refugees uh, in the diaspora, and it's going, going back decades, but it, it took a long time for people to be able to start writing in English. So. I think that, that, that reviewer is accurate in saying that this is the beginning of a, of a, I don't know if it's a canon, but identifying a group of, of people who see themselves as refugees and who want to write about that. Was that, was that a part of your thinking too? Yeah, I mean, I, well, I, um, I know the review you're talking about and I was really pleased to, to think about it that way. Um, I, I agree about the amount of time that it takes to kind of have that, uh, the, the language and the, the you know, writers kind of emerge from those communities. But I think it also takes time, um, really emotionally, too. I, so many of the writers who were in this book kind of came out of the Cold War, or um, there's a, a really specific kind of window. And I, um, I think that, you know, there, the, it, it just takes time to, I think, process creatively as well and emotionally. And I think, uh, you know, that's something that I hope the creative process actually helps and empowers. It's interesting to think that, you know, we don't have any much younger, you know, 21st century Afghan writers or Iraqi writers or Syrian writers. And I think that that's because they're not there yet. They're in high school. And that 10 years from now, when we do the 10th anniversary edition, that, you know, there'll be, there will be a flowering of people who've written really interesting fiction about those experiences. Well, I went to Boise, Idaho, okay? Uh, <laughs> Boise, Idaho. Well, Idaho is 89% uh, white, officially. I felt like it was 99% white because I gave a talk to 700 people and I think there were seven of us who were not white in that auditorium. But the day after, I, I went and gave a talk at a high school which had a refugee program. So Boise has a strong refugee program and I was in front of a room full of 40 or 50 refugee students, and they came from all over the place. I mean, there was some from countries I'm familiar with, like Vietnam, for example, but then there, was, there were people from Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, um, Congo, Rwanda, the list was just went on and on and on, and I think, and they were, and they were in that refugee program to write. So they shared their poems, they shared their, their essays, they'd written this in English, they'd just gotten here like a year or two ago, and so I think you're right, there's some of them, one or two or, th or three of them will become writers in 20 or 30 years after they've had time to process the requisite emotional damage that comes from being a refugee. One of the pieces that's in the book by the our, by uh, Mazam and Jiste is about, it's called This Is What the Journey Does, and it's about she sees an East African man on the street in Florence who's very clearly been sort of psychologically damaged by his experience of presumably crossing the Mediterranean to get to Italy. And she sees him and she thinks about Lazarus, the biblical figure, and sort of 
what you know he's this resurrected figure but obviously he's changed by the experience now he's sort of a miracle but also an aberration and he can never really fit in I sort of wonder if you two could talk about the, that feeling of you know the you when you survive this experience and when you become an adult you are essentially the lucky ones how does it feel to have gone through a very difficult traumatic family experience and yet still come out the other side and feel like the ones who've survived? Well, it feels like a responsibility, I think. Um, I, I love that essay uh, that Maza wrote and I, I was, it, you know, that line, you know, I did not come, or I did not come like this or something. She was making a really clear distinction um, and Maza also is from Ethiopia, and she left um, also in that same era. And you know that was the Cold War. And so when people leave the communist world and you know came to the West, there was some pride in that um, that the West would would derive from uh, you know the idea of the defector or um, you know people leaving uh, you know a regime that couldn't you know live up to. Uh, to its promise or, you know, so I feel like there was a lot ideologically going on at that time that made our our uh, refugee experience different uh, than what is going on right now in East Africa. Uh, and, but you know, that so to me, I think it's important to make that distinction to recognize that, you know, we might come from the same place, we might be refugees as well, but it is different. Um, there are distinctions, there is, there is, in a really weird way, you know, she positions herself as privileged uh, in relation to this other man who, you know, had presumably experienced something very different. Um, but yeah, it does feel like responsibility and it does feel like um, also an opportunity. I mean, we're here, we are, we are lucky. So both of you write fiction and nonfiction. Do you feel like a compelled or, or driven to make your fiction more political because of your personal experiences? <laughs> Anybody who knows me knows I'm very political. I'm not exactly sure where that comes from, but I think it's like a diversion from Catholicism. You know, um, <laughs> my parents uh, were born in this, this area of North Vietnam, rural region that's really poor, 30 minutes from where Ho Chi Minh was born, and it's famous for producing two kinds of people, hardcore communists and hardcore Catholics. And as different as they are, what they share in common is that they love to suffer. And, you know, okay, so that's the kind of politics, right? You know, well, let's go, crucify me, I want that. Uh, so I think that, that, that does uh, affect me. And so, yeah, I think I, I, I've uh, always, as soon as I became a writer, it was always, as soon as I became a college-age writer, it became political. When I was a writer who was just growing up, I just was writing for fun sort of lost that once I got to college and felt like writing had to matter. We had to talk about political issues. And it, we do, but you know, it's also about how to, how to make it fun as well. It's been a long journey to get to that point. But um, just to go back to the previous question about responsibility, opportunity, obligations, you know. Recently, this Vietnamese newspaper ran a profile on me about my success, and then in the comments, people were saying a number of things, but they, there was a common theme, and one person said, the reason why he's successful is that he got to leave the country. <laughs> and someone else said, exactly. Uh, so there's that sentiment, you know, even in Vietnam, that the refugees somehow were the lucky ones that they got out. Uh, and I do feel that in some ways because, you know, my parents got out, my brother got out, I got out. My adopted sister did not get out. Yeah, right. You know, so I grew up uh, with uh, one photo of her a black and white wallet-sized photo that my dad had managed to, to, to bring out of the country of this 16-year-old girl who was left behind. And no one talked about her. And I thought, wait a minute, there's an absent presence in our house. There's, there's, there's a haunting here. What happened? And that shaped me psychically as a writer because you know, I, I wanted to write about that, and I, and I did write a very horrible poem about that in college. But, but that that's that was symbolic of, of what was left behind for me, and, and uh, one of the one of the major motivations for becoming a writer. Where is she now? In Vietnam. Can I just add also that I think in this 
age, you know, our very identities have been politicized in a way that sure. I think makes it hard for us to remove our work from that, from that kind of context. So I don't know how much of a choice we have. Yeah. I mean, we confront it. Well, it's interesting. I mean, speaking of choice, you know, Beth, you write in the introduction about like willing yourself to publicly identify as a refugee, and both of you wouldn't have to wear that label unless you chose to. And so, I, I, I'm curious if you could talk about why you feel that's so important. I, you know, for me, it's it's really for you know people who. To me, it's more about facing uh, and turning towards those who are in that more precarious state now. I mean, I, I, it's a an, an act of solidarity, an act of compassion. I think, um, and just empathy, knowing that I've, I've been through that experience. I don't know that there's a perfect term. I mean, technically, when we are resettled, we're not technically refugees. We're not technically um, seeking you know, sure. that type of protection, but what, like, what is the right language? I feel like I do still identify with that experience and there's no better, there's no better way to kind of make that connection. Well, yeah, I think that because of our history of immigration in this country, um, we're very familiar with immigrants. We're not very familiar with refugees. And so it's easier to identify as an immigrant, even if you are a refugee or, or have been a refugee. And uh, that just exacerbates the invisibility that refugees already experience. So I just did an event and we did a survey, survey of the audience and it turns out 60 to 70% of the people in that room either were, were immigrants or were related to immigrants. And 9% were refugees or related to refugees. But you wouldn't even know that there was 9%. Because people don't normally stand up and say, "Hey, I'm a refugee." <laughs> you know, that's not the, that's the quickest way to kill cocktail party conversation. <laughs> like if you if you say I'm an immigrant at a cocktail party, people are like, oh, "Okay, yeah, you came here and yeah, let's hear your heartwarming American success story." So I'm a refugee, like, "Oh, did you come over on a boat? What was that like?" You know, there's no there's no way for people to relate. So there's a huge encouragement to to not identify as a refugee. And I've had experiences where literally, you know, I was I was talking, I was talking to another USC person. And she said, I'm a refugee. I said, really? Because huh. <laughs> I thought you were just an immigrant. So I'm guilty of it too. And she's guilty of it as well. Because we don't, if we don't actively identify as refugees, it's clear that if you look at me, I'm just a bourgeoisie, you know, and uh, just another immigrant. So there's a huge, besides the issues of empathy, which you raise, and I think that's super crucial, there's, there's also that necessity to be visible, to claim this identity, this category, in order to remind people of who refugees have been and who they have become. So another thing that this, another thing that this review in The Economist mentioned, which clearly I really love this review, was that you know, citizens of this displaced nation all have their own tragedies, their own victories, their own pain. Each of them has a story to tell, but obviously not all of them are talented writers like you two and the other contributors to the book. Uh, do you feel like, you know, you write in the, in, the in the introduction yet about this idea of giving voice to the voiceless and what that means and what it, what it gains and where it falls short. I wonder how you feel about that responsibility and what it does. By the way, have you ever been called a voice to the voiceless? Yes. <laughs> okay. So it's it's a common thing to trot out when some hot new writer emerges that that person's going to be the voice for the voiceless. And uh, of course, there have been voices for the voiceless before. For any population, there will be voices for the voiceless in the future. And so I I. I, I don't take it as a compliment to be called a voice for the voiceless because what it really does, what it really means is that the audience only wants to hear one voice at a time. Mm -hmm. It's easier to deal with one voice at a time. And the audience doesn't want to hear the whole chorus of voices that comes from a community, or in the case of Vietnamese people, the cacophony of voices that comes from the community. And th this is where literature is both powerful and also disabling, you know, because literature does bring us those voices and we need to have those voices and I believe in having those voices. But I think it's also tempting for people to simply hear the voices and think they've dealt with the problem. Right. And they haven't. And what we're really, I mean, what I'm really committed to is to end voicelessness. 
And literature can be a part of that project, but you also need social and political organizations, movements to do that as well. And if we only look at literature to help us solve the problem, we're not going to solve the problem. Um, Marone, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned very briefly about this, but when you wrote your essay and sent it in and you know, we, just, we finished it, it was done, you then shared it with your father, right? And, and tell me what happened when you shared it with him. Well, actually, one of the things that uh, when you were speaking right now about being a voice for the voiceless, I mean, I, in so many ways, this story to me, you know, it belongs in so many ways to my parents. And um, I took that, that journey to put myself closer to the center of it, I, to acknowledge that I was, I was there and that it was also my story, but also to get closer to to them and, and their stories. So I did, I shared it with my father who had, <laughs> he really had so much to say and it made me really wish that I had a way to and want to find a way to bring his story forth. Um, and you know, he, you know, he, he would be like, oh, I think it was more like this, or, you know, he wanted to um, kind of help guide this story, which I really appreciated and I wanted, um, and, I, you know, I wanted, because I do think we're trying to create space for other voices. I don't think the point is to be a voice for other people. Um, I, so, you know, I did want um, to kind of open up that, that process for him. Um, and it's funny because then I also offered the same to my mom, and she's like, "No." She didn't want to. <laughs> she didn't want to offer input and make no, corrections. and you know, which I also respect because not everyone wants to take up that that role and or to take on that That's right. obligation too. Um, right. So I, you know, I offered it. I offered that um, kind of experience to my father, and you know, we did have. A conversation around it, and I, you know, I learned more and I about that, and you know, there's so yeah, and it made me realize, you know, what a rich story is there that he that he has to share as well. Have your parents had editorial changes for any of your writing yet? <laughs> well, um, once I published a story, uh, and then it was translated into Vietnamese. This was before my books came out, and so I brought home the Vietnamese translation of this story to my parents. And like I told you, my parents are devout Catholics, right? So this story happened to be about a Vietnamese refugee who comes to San Francisco in 1975 and discovers that he's gay. So I gave my, my dad that story, never heard about it again. Uh, <laughs> so no, I don't think they're interested in the editorial comments. Um, they're just, they're, they're, I think they're proud that I'm actually, you know, successful according to their, to their standards. And that's good enough. <laughs> so... We're going to do some Q&A, but uh, before we do that, I wanted to introduce a special guest we have tonight. Jonathan is here from the IRC. You know, talking about giving voice to the voiceless is not really enough. Um, one of the motivations why I was really excited about publishing this book and making this, bringing it out into the world is that the IRC, the, one of the leading refugee charities, is getting 10% of the cover price of the hardcover and the e-books uh, with a guaranteed donation from Abrams Press. Uh, so that every book sold will have a real-world benefit for refugees today. And Jonathan's going to tell us a little bit about what the IRC does. All right, so on behalf of the IRC, again, I can't say how grateful we are for that. Um, so my name is Jonathan Fain. I work for the International Rescue Committee here in Los Angeles. Um, we, for those of you who don't know, we're one of the nine resettlement agencies in the United States authorized to resettle refugees. Um, we work in over 35 countries uh, and 26 cities in the United States. So most people hear the work that we do outside of the U.S. Uh, whenever there's a humanitarian crisis in Africa, um, Southeast Asia, what was happening um, in Greece and Lesbos, that's what most people know about the work we do. But here in the U.S. we do a lot of work and our biggest task here is to help refugees be resettled, find their new home here in the United States. So that's something that we do in 26 cities. Um, we have our two regions, Atlantic Central and then Pacific West. Um, and here in Pacific West, uh, in the LA office, uh, we started in 1975, um, and we started working with Southeast Asian refugees at the time, most of them coming from Vietnam. Um, 
But IFC is a lot older than that, by the way. We were founded in 1933 by Albert Einstein, so in case you didn't know, um, fun tidbit there. Um, so here in LA, we've worked with refugees since 1975. That's been our main goal. Help them find a home away from home, guide them through the process of becoming uh, US citizens. So it's go from refugee to resident to US citizens. So a lot of what you hear today in the media and about immigration is a lot of the work that we do. Um, and our populations have fluctuated since we started working here in LA. So we started with Southeast, um, Southeast Asian populations and we've changed over time because the crisis changed and different refugee populations have uh, come out um, and based on the statistic that you said, it's all based on what the United Nations determines a refugee to be. Um, so there's a whole intricate system of how a refugee gets here. But that's only a piece of their, of their trip to come to the United States, right? So they, they come here, they arrive, we help them, but then what happens after they're, they're here? What happens after we take them out from that situation? And that's when our other programs come in. So IRC is all about being kind of a one-stop shop for all the services that a refugee or an immigrant may need. And that's that distinction in the terminology that you guys were discussing. Refugees are immigrants, but they're a different kind of immigrant because of their story. So we work here with refugees, with asylees, with immigrants from other parts of the world, and we help them go from being residents to achieving the fulfillment of that American dream to becoming U.S. citizens. So we guide them in the legal process. So we have an immigration department where we do that work. Um, we have our early employment program for refugees and asylees, help them find their first job in the United States. We have an economic empowerment program which is focused on financial literacy and financial coaching. So uh, it's very simple for us to say, oh, let's open a bank account. You know, I'm going to have my credit card. I'm going to pay my student loans. Easier said than done. But for refugees and immigrants, it's something brand new. Financial systems don't translate equally from the US to everywhere else, so we, we've developed programs that teach them how to navigate these systems. And ultimately, what we try to do with our clients, refugees, asylees, and immigrants, is integrate them into the community in whatever way they feel they want to be a part of that community. So we work with local organizations, with local government, local um, public systems, so we work with LAPL, we work with the county system, we work with local companies so they can hire refugees. So it's, uh, IRC is all about being in a place where a refugee can actually achieve what might have been impossible in their home country because of a political situation or a natural disaster, or, you know, any number of variables that affected their, their travel here. And um, a lot of the stories that are in the in essays that are in the book are still echoed today with a lot of the refugees that come here. So for us, being part of this um, and seeing the discussion you guys have is this question that our refugees have amongst themselves and they have with us when they talk to us. And immigrants have these questions too. How did they get here? You know, I came over the border illegally. Now I'm able to become a citizen, but how is their story different than mine? And it's interesting how we found a way to intersect those stories. Um, and it's just something that you know, the current administration has put into, brought to light more than ever. Um, I'm sure you're aware that there's the presidential determination, the ban on certain populations. So just to have a sense of how our work has been impacted by this is we depend on those arrivals. We can't serve those populations if they're not here. Um, so for example, 99, there's been a 99% drop in Syrian refugee resettlement. So nationally, we've only resettled 44 Syrian refugees in the fiscal year. So we work on the federal fiscal year. So FY18, only 44 Syrian refugees. Um, and that's just that population. Um, refugees from Iran are not even coming in. They're stuck in Austria, most of them, and some of them are going back to Iran just because they know they're not gonna be able to come in. And all these things uh, are what we wanna do. We wanna find a way to help at least the refugees that are here and tell them, okay, we're gonna help you. You're not gonna get kicked out, right? We're gonna help you go through the legal process. And then we're gonna also try to work with legislators, right, and with the community to find a way to open the door again, little by little. It's gonna be a long process, gonna be a hard process, but we just have to um, be, be aware of what's happening and be informed. So something that we, we strive to do at IRC is not, it's not just about us giving services to immigrants and refugees, but to talk to the community. Um, we have ways for you to be involved. We have uh, programs that you can volunteer in. Um, if you don't want to volunteer your time, you can volunteer your money. Um, and if you don't want to do either, if you just want to learn of what we do and then tell somebody else of what we do, that also counts. 
um, this this collection of essays is one way that that's being done. Um, when you read their stories, again, it's an echo of what's going on today. Um, and if you understand that, and if you see that, it's the work that we do. We want to make sure that they they come out and be successful, and whatever that measure of success may be varies by culture, um, but it's something that we want to see in our refugees. Um, and we're incredibly grateful to the supporters like Viet and Abrams Books who are raising awareness on the global refugee crisis and what's happening here in the U.S. with resettlement. So that's my little tidbit about IRC, but I will stick around afterwards if you have questions. Um, and Thank you, Jonathan. That's that was it. great. Yeah. So, did, yeah. so we have a little time to take questions if anybody has any. Anyone? Yes. So the question was, what are the biggest stereotypes that you are trying to fight in your writing? Um, I let me answer that two ways. One, I I think it's um, I'm not sure how many. Um, it's like Viet was saying, you know, refugees are not necessarily well uh, understood or. They're not a very visible population, and I think of, you know, specifically Ethiopia. There's a large population of Ethiopians here now, and I just don't think there's a, a lot of awareness. Of course, um, there are stereotypes. I remember when I first came to the U.S. and I was living in Iowa when we were really young. It was around the time of the famine, and there were, you know, kids would tell these cruel jokes about, uh, you know, starving children and um, how. You know, it was there was just this very like cruel uh, line of of um, kind of like joking that would go on in the school around um, just like the the kind of lack in the culture. And I feel like you know I come from a very rich culture, and there is a lot that our culture has to offer, um, and that it is a very creative and uh, literary and musical, you know. Society and I, you know, but I don't feel like I want to be like an ambassador for um, for the culture in that way. But I do, you know, I do feel like because there's a lack of understanding. Um, really, it's not so much any specific stereotype; it's just a lack of understanding. Well, the problem with stereotypes is that they're 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 bad, whether they happen to be good or bad. Okay, so when we when I first got to to the United States, um, I remember some of the same things. You know, the kids would tease me like, "So did you have to carry a machine gun in Vietnam?" You know, and uh, and when my parents opened the second Vietnamese grocery store in San Jose, California, I, I walked down the street near my parents' store when I was 10 or 11 years old. Saw a sign in the store window that said, "Another American driven out of business by the Vietnamese." Okay directed at people like us. So that's bad, of course, and we want our writing to humanize Vietnamese people and to counteract these kinds of, of terrible stereotypes and everything. But going the other direction is equally bad too, okay? So for example, now, some of these former Vietnamese refugees, my Vietnamese brothers and sisters, are saying, we were the good refugees. Yeah. Syrians, for example, not so good. Let's not take in any of these Syrian refugees, for example. And I grew up among Vietnamese refugees in the 70s and 80s, and I can tell you, we had a lot of bad refugees, okay? Welfare fraud, insurance scams, cash under the table economy. We invented the home invasion. I mean, seriously, Vietnamese gangsters committed this crime so new the San Jose Police Department had to come up with this term to describe it. We were bad. And of course, everybody's forgotten that, you know, people, both the Vietnamese and Americans, choose to remember Vietnamese Americans as the good refugees, because it fits our American dream narrative. And so, it's actually important to say, no, we fucked up a lot, and, and uh, that's part of what makes us human. So that's, that's part of what we do, as the whole point about being writers, writing about refugees, is not to lionize them or heroicize them or anything, it's a show, if we show that they're human, we show that they also, too, bad things as well, just like every, everybody else. I think one of the things that I found interesting in working on this and talking to refugees from all over and also people from the IRC a number of times is that the only thing that distinguishes all of us from refugees, those of us who were not refugees, is our external factors. It's luck, it's 
you know, a, a natural disaster, it's war, it's politics. Like, people don't, people are thrust into that situation. They're just people like everybody else. Yes? Um, possibly you would know more about this, but I was listening, coming over on the radio, about the state of Hawaii suing President Trump for personal prejudices and voicing his um, racist beliefs prior to the election. That's a really brave case for the state of Hawaii to enter against Trump. The Supreme Court's hearing this, and Roberts is like shooting this thing down left and right. And you say, well, you know, if 20 Syrians um, come into the country and have bad aims, Will the president not be able to act to block their entry into the country? But, you know, so you know this way the level of discussion the Supreme Court is heading towards. And I'm just wondering. I guess all of you would be informed about this, and will be pertinent to what you're talking about tonight. You so, repeat the question. Just so that this was the state of Hawaii is bringing a case at the Supreme Court this week, arguing about whether Trump showed animus against uh, racial, racial animus in his campaign statements against Muslims and then immediately putting into place the travel ban. Yeah, so um, that's a bit of a complex question because there's a lot of elements there. So the first one is um, in, in, immigration in immigration law communities and resettlement agencies, we first have to determine which executive order we're talking about. So we call them EO 1.1, EO 1.2, or EO 1.3, executive order. Um, and when we look at that, we have to see what that language is. So what happens with that is um, as resettlement agencies, we have to understand, first of all, um, that we're working with a government, right? We don't work for the government. So that's something very important that we've had to explain multiple times. A lot of people think because we're federally funded, um, we work for the government. We don't. We work with them. So bringing in these refugees, we have to tell the government, you understand that these people, before they get here, and you guys, your families went through this, you were younger at the time, they go through incredible hurdles trying to get here. The amount of vetting that refugees get is more vetting than any other immigrant that comes into the U.S. And I know you've heard this a thousand times, but I want to reiterate it. Now the problem with what's going on um, with the arguments is where's that fine line of what the law says and what the reality is? So immigration law is an incredibly complex system. It's, there's something called the INA, the Immigration Naturalization Act, really old body of law that is really hard to change but the executive order allows them to do it. Um, and it allows them to do it, sorry, let me rephrase that, to a certain extent. So it's not like he can completely reshape the INA, right? In this case, the argument is national security. These, um, well, this nat these national groups pose a theoretical threat to the United States. So what we've done, and, and this is what other, ad other agencies are doing in DC, and we're trying to work with local governments and district courts, and this is something that goes beyond just IRC. They show them refugees are not what you're saying they are, especially Syrian refugees, so you're not saying what they are. Um, and something that we did internally is, okay, so when you think of the immigration patterns um, in the early 1900s, all the refugees, all the immigrants, I'm not gonna call them refugees because it's, it's, it's a relatively new term, were coming from Europe, people had the same reaction that people are having towards Syrian refugees. So let's call them Middle Eastern refugees today. So it's just a change of the population, but the comments are the same. You just switch Italian or Irish or Syrian or Iranian, Afghani, you know, you can just interchange that term. Like this good, bad refugee, or good immigrant. Exactly, which is what, what you were mentioning. So then what's going on right now at um, the Supreme Court, we're getting very limited information on what the hearings are actually saying. We're just having to go with it, and at this point, if uh, this it looks like he's getting shot down, they did some of the wrongs. Yeah, there, uh, it seems that Chief Justice Roberts and one of the other conservative justices they're they're destroying the argument that the Ninth Circuit and that um, Hawaii, California, and it's called more liberal states were supporting. They're saying they're not valid. So at that point, it just comes down to how we can work with legislators and do advocacy at a local, state, federal level to try to get those changes. And it's hard. Again, we're, we're, we're going against a machine that, um, as a resettlement agency, we're one of nine. We need to, all of it, all nine of us are trying to get this to change. I just have to add to this and then I'll quit. I have never seen in my lifetime protests like those people on a split second getting out to those airports. Mm -hmm. I have never been more impressed in my life, and that's including the previous generation that stopped war. To see that instantly happen, to see 
academics to see the ACL to see these people heading these. I mean, that even the women's march it just really flashed in my mind what's possible by an active populace. And you know, without Trump, we wouldn't be seeing the activism we are seeing today. That particular airport activism was so impressive. And I don't understand how a Supreme Court can shoot this down when you've got a, a people on the march right now who are willing to come out to airports like they did for that. Can you comment on that? I can't really comment on that because um, as IRC, we, we said, you know, our, re our refugees were stuck in the airport. We had our refugees arriving when it all happened and they were stuck in the airport. So it was something that we were directly impacted and our own volunteers and local supporters, they just went. We, di we didn't have to ask them. So that mobilization that you mentioned has been incredibly huge in showing the federal government like, hey, uh, as a resettlement agency, we're not alone. It's not just the 7,000 employees of this organization. All of America. Um, that are against this, but you have a whole country behind it. Um, and just so you have a sense of the refugee population, um, there's 45,000 was a presidential determination of how many refugees were going to be resettled this fiscal year. There's only about 20,000 that will be resettled, and that 45,000 is about half of the historical uh, amount of refugees that this country has resettled. So it's even smaller amount, but we're trying to hopefully through advocacy and community engagement get that number to change. So we had one other question here in the front. Sorry. Well, first, congratulations, guests. I'm so looking forward to reading this book, and this panel has been thrilling. So, uh, and thanks, Skylight, for putting this all together. You know, this is a, a wonderful event. My question is if you could just talk a little bit about how this book came about. Right? And whose idea was it? Yeah, was this your idea? Was this uh, how did, and I'm also curious too because you're talking about this somewhat sense of a, a writerly community, right? But so how did you get these contributors? Did you already know them? Did you was it through your own contacts? Uh, did you put out a call for for contributions? Like how did the book come about? So the question is how the book came about. Well, I have to say, the credit goes actually to Jameson. Okay, this is like the easiest book that ever happened to me. And I did nothing. So like, Jameson contacted me and said, um, you know, and you can tell your own personal story, but it, but it was- Post-sympathizer? Yeah, yeah, post-sympathizer. And basically delivered the book to me on a platter. You know, but my, my name is on the book, but really Jameson should be as well. Um, and it was it was really his impetus. Maybe you can talk about that. Yeah, so the previous question about, you know, which referenced the the, protests after the travel ban, um, I was one of those people who just jumped and went out to JFK in the freezing cold and, you know, had signs and was yelling and I, you know, I felt driven to do that and very, very much tied into some of the things we've been talking about. My wife came to the U.S. as a refugee and she and I have been married for a long time and I always thought of her as an immigrant, not as a refugee. And after the travel ban, we talked and I said, you know, we clarified that actually she had come from the Soviet Union as a refugee on a refugee visa. Um, and I felt, you know, it was great to protest and obviously that there was a stay against the ban and, you know, I gave money and, I mean, I, I work in book publishing, I don't make a lot of money, so, you know, there's, what else can I do? And then it was like, all right, I work in book publishing. And I had very recently only you know, two months before, come over to start this new imprint called Abrams Press at Abrams Books, and it's like, oh, I work in book publishing. I have the power of the printing press. I, I run this publishing imprint, so let's do this. And I knew I obviously was very familiar with Yet because of, you know, I read books. And everybody's familiar with Yet, but I worked at his his original fiction publisher, um, and I thought, you know, there was an opportunity to pull together so much of this great outpouring of people's stories that happened at that time. People were writing essays about what it was to be a refugee, maybe for the first time writing about their parents' experience as refugees. I also worried that they would disappear. So it was you know, an impetus to preserve these stories, to collect them together. No. There are one or two that, have, that had been published previously. In, uh, one was in The Guardian. Um, one had been translated in from, it was written in English, but was published in Vogue in Italy. Um, so to gather these stories together, but then also that we could do it in partnership with the charity, and so the IRC was my first choice because obviously they're amazing, they do great work. But how did you find the office? That was a combination of Viet and I working together with thinking of, you know, who were really talented refugee writers, and um, 
you can maybe speak to that a little. No, I mean, like, it was basically, I think, maybe half and half. You know, some of them were people I knew, and some of them were people that you knew, and we had a, you know, whole wish list. And we did get most of the writers that we that we wanted, the literary writers. We also had a list of people who were not literary, but who thought we thought might write, you know, and I don't think that really happened. No, it's like Milos Forman, the filmmaker who recently passed away, was somebody I thought of, and we reached out to him, and he wasn't in very good health and couldn't do it, but... That was the one thing that I was a little disappointed that we were never quite able to get was the World War II era refugees. And just one final follow-up. Um, is there any region of the world that you feel isn't represented in the book that you, like where are the... So the question is if whether we feel there are any regions that are not represented. I would say that sort of contemporary Middle East, that we have two Iranian writers, but both came in the 80s. Um, and I think we're, those writers are being developed right now, and yet, you know, obviously spoke to them, and we'll see them. And yeah, we have writers from Africa, from uh, various parts of Europe, because of World War II and afterwards, and, you know, Alexander Heyman from Bosnia. Um, I, 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 besides contemporary uh, Middle East, I think also south of the American, south of the American border. And this is the reason why I invited Reina Grande to be a contributor to this anthology, because Reina came as an undocumented, technically undocumented immigrant, right? But my, part of the, 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 what my thinking was, well, what is the difference between an undocumented immigrant and a, and a refugee? Uh, a lot of these people who are fleeing from north to south uh, are fleeing wars. I mean, they're fleeing real wars, or they're fleeing drug wars, which are real wars. And these wars are at least partly the result of U.S. manipulation of, of, of Latin American countries. So the U.S. has a vested interest in not calling any of these people refugees. And so, but that was the only that was the only writer we actually could get uh, from south of the border, to, in order, and partly to raise that very really important issue of, of categorization. I think we have time for maybe one more right here in the front. I'd like to not just a question, but uh, it's great for you to get that spotlight. But you're being too humble. You're, you're no one has ever accused me of that. <laughs> you are, yeah, you're both a, a wonderful curator. And, uh, and you give support to a lot of these good people that wouldn't get attention without that kind of support. Thank you very much. Um, let me just say that the last time I was introduced by a good friend of mine who's known me for a very long time, he said, uh, well, I wish we could say that Viet has stayed humble. <laughs> but those of us who know him know that he was never humble. Uh, but no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a collective effort. And, um, and again, I think that's why I was so gratified that so many refugees who are writers readily agreed to do this and recognize the importance of this kind of a project. And thanks to all of you for coming tonight as Thank well. you, everyone. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.